0: Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Bucher. Rick Bucher. Welcome to another episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Bucher. You can see me on FS1. You can read me on Bleacher Report. You can hear me on radio.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Rick Bucher. And on Instagram, at Rick underscore Buecher. We're about 18 days out from Christmas, which meant back in the day, 17 days until I had to start my Christmas shopping. I am much better about it now. I'm happy to report. I've actually bought a few items already. But one of the things I wish I could buy and give to myself is a time machine or a genie stuffer to return the NBA game to the days when the rules weren't tilted so dramatically in favor of scoring. I never thought I'd get bored with up-and-down play and 120-plus point games, but that's where that's where I find myself. Uh, and by the way, uh, I'm recording this after David Fisdale was dismissed by the New York Knicks. Uh, I'm waiting to get a little more information, and you'll find out why, because this podcast is a reflection of the value of waiting a little bit before uh, coming out and making a pronouncement or a determination on exactly uh, why things happened or what they mean. And that's the case with David Fisdale from everything I knew from the beginning of the season. This was not something that the Knicks front office wanted to do. It wasn't anything that they were anticipating on doing. I know there's some reports out there that he was being set up. Might be the case, but they had no intention of firing him this early. Uh, really is uh, my best guesstimate at this point. It, that is, that it's a reflection of two 30-plus point losses, and they simply simply couldn't go on. There had to be some development, some belief in the coach, development by the young players, belief from the veteran players, and that's what made this necessary at this time. Also, there was a a, a place in the schedule right before Christmas where they've got a number of Easy opponents, and that would usually be the time when you make a coaching change. So the new guy comes in, and uh, d- demonstrates that yeah, the team can move in a positive direction. I my my guesstimate there is they simply didn't want to wait until right before Christmas. That they, if they were going to do it, they thought let's do it now, rather than the untoward well, insult upon injury move of firing somebody on Christmas Eve or. They're uh, they're nearby. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, back to the case at hand. Um, I, th- there is more offense than there has been the last, uh, certainly the last couple of years, and certainly this year. I mean, we're seeing 150 point games. We're seeing teams routinely break 120. Betting the over would be the smart way to go by and large, and that was the case last year, certainly early on, and. Uh, Look, I don't think I'm alone either uh, on this not finding it all that attractive based on the TV ratings for the primary broadcast partners and the complaints that I see on social media. And look, I know, the vast majority of everything on social media is complaining about one thing or another, but still. The games are just not that compelling. And one reason is that all that scoring has produced notably more lopsided winning margins than any time in the last few years, and the style of play has become uh, patently predictable and uniform by teams across the league. When it comes to the margin. Last season, only five teams finished. I'm going to get a little analytical with you, and I generally don't do this, but sometimes it serves a purpose, especially when it comes to team comparisons, and league-wide assessments. So last season, only five teams finished with a plus scoring margin above four points. It was Milwaukee, Toronto, Golden State, Houston, and Utah. This year so far, there are 11 that have a plus margin of four or more. And Two years ago, there were only four. Same for the year before that. So there's a decided jump from the last few years to where we are right now. And again, understand it's early in the season. That may even out. But the bottom line is, if there's a reason why the the game doesn't seem as entertaining per usual, it's because the games are not competitive uh, or as competitive as we're used to seeing them. And here's the other part about the uniform does it feel, or the uniform style of play. Does it feel to you as if more threes are being launched by everyone? It's not a feel. It's real. Last year, 13 teams got 30% or more of their scoring from three-pointers. 13. This year, 20 of them. And Memphis, Memphis, the team that Played slow and didn't shoot threes, is sitting at 29.9, and OKC is at 29.8. So darn near 22 teams are getting nearly a third of their scoring from three-point shooting. Now, for comparison, three seasons ago, there were only six teams getting 30% or more of their points off threes, and five years ago, there were just two, the Warriors and the Rockets. So maybe we know who to blame for this trend. But this is what bothers me most about the rules. Because it's not just style of play. The the style of play is because they're taking advantage of how the game is being officiated and, and how the rules are being interpreted. The rules as they're being interpreted discourage team play. As much as we might not like the way James Harden plays, the fact of the matter is it works. And so, why not? There's no reason to pass or cut or do anything creative collectively. Because one player who can handle the ball and shoot is either going to get off a three-pointer, get fouled, or get to the rim the vast majority of the time. Go back to the the days of Vince Lombardi, who wasn't big on, on the forward pass. And... It's because there was too much of a chance of, of an interception. You know, two of, two of three things could happen uh, that, that weren't good in an instance. It's incomplete or it gets intercepted. And same goes with passing now in, in the NBA. Chance of a turnover, uh, chance of it being passed to somebody who can't shoot and or is not as good a shooter and doesn't a shot is not created. So why not just put it in the hands of your best player, and let him go to work? The the game and the rules encourage that style of play, and we're seeing it by and large. Look, the the Harden and the Rockets are an extreme example of it, but it's not as if we're not seeing it in different forms from every single team. Spurs included. I watched the end of the Spurs Kings game and. Basically put it in the bar to Rosen's hands, time after time after time. Might set a screen, hope to get a switch, but once you got the switch, now it's one-on-one. Let that guy attack, see, who, see where he can go. So there's no reason to pass. There's no reason to cut. There's no reason to do anything collectively creative because, as I said, one player can, can do it all. And some of the rules that are uh, creating... That situation is that they've loosened the rules, clearly loosened the rules on screen setting. Uh, now that it forces a defender to trail a shooter rather than get over that stationary screen early, you can't because the big, the big can move. I, I don't know, I don't, and I haven't I probably should. I should talk to some officials because I have the access to talk to referees and find out what it is, where do they draw the line? on illegal screens, because they do call illegal screens now and then. But man, the, the amount of movement that you have to do to get that whistle is, uh, let's just say, it's very liberal. There, <laughs> So, um, I mean, the vast majority of them look illegal to me. And, and based on how they're called at the high school and collegiate levels, it's completely different. And I don't know if there's Look, there's not a whole lot of screen setting in AAU from what I've seen, so I can't compare how it's called there. Now, since the defender has to trail, the offensive player can suddenly stop, and that trail defender, if he's not careful, is going to run into him. Foul. If he doesn't, the offensive player can contort his body to make sure that the defender does, or he stops, starts again, and now is left his defender trying to guard him from behind, forcing the defensive big man to guard two men, both of which are headed for the rim. If another defender comes over, that means somebody's open for a three. You get the picture. So, and getting to the rim never has been easier since you now have three full steps to get there. The Eurostep was already an expansion of the traveling rules. Maybe people forget this, but it was. The Eurostep, 15 or so years ago, Introduced by the Manu Ginobili's. That's who I think of most when I think of the Eurostep. That gave offensive players a full two steps. Now, people will say NBA long had two steps. And I would say yes on certain, on breakaways, on certain situations, but not in a move to get past a guy. Like, they'd give it to you to finish a play, but not necessarily to get by somebody. Now you got the two the two steps to set up a shot. You got it everywhere, basically. And so it was prior to that. It was one and a half steps. It was gather step, and then another step, and you finish. And that's still basically how it's called. It certainly at the high school level. And and this is where this becomes difficult because. You have players who watch the NBA all the time, want to replicate what their best their favorite players do. Well, now the games are becoming so disparate, I don't know that you can really afford to do that as a young player. You might you might get away from get away with it in AAU, but it's it's going to kill the high school game and puts the collegiate game in a, in a difficult position. But here, look, the reality is now, it's two steps and a very loosely defined gather step essentially three steps. The different interpretations of what a gather step that I've seen online uh, or through social media by the official referees NBA referees feed indicates that there's a very liberal interpretation of where the gather gather step is. Basically anything after you've uh, as the balls coming up, you can take a step anywhere in there, and that's the gather step. Now, you add the youngest stable of refs the NBA has had in a long time and a mandate seemingly to call every infraction, whether it impacts play or creates an advantage or not, and it has turned the game into what James Harden has perfected. How do I make it impossible for you to guard me? Not because I'm going by you, because, but because you either have to give me space Or I can force you to make contact with me. It's a heightened version of fool the referee, which guys have been playing in the NBA or doing in the NBA for decades. Only difference now is the referees are in on it. They are mandated to be fooled into blowing the whistle. Even when a guy hasn't really created a shot being thwarted by excessive physical force. That's what it's come down to. These jumpers leaning forward contorting their bodies it's not a natural jumping uh shooting shooting motion and yet referees have been told that they have to make that call and it all I think it all generated from giving the landing space for a jumper but it's gotten way out of control and it's not this just not that to me is not the elegance of the game it's not the beauty of the game the beauty of the game is in, players playing together creating opportunities having to and and having to do that to beat the other side the other group of players who are working in tandem to stop that flow So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, that chemistry. Now there's a simple way to resolve all this as I see it. Take away the extra step. Let's go back to two steps. I'll, I'll give you the euro. I don't think that's going anywhere and it's it's kind of a cool move, so... We'll stay with it. Don't allow screens to move. And stop blowing the whistle when an offensive player jumps into a defensive player, wherever they might be on the floor. It will force teams, once again, to move players and the ball to create shots. Which, I don't think I'm alone here, is what we all love most about the game, right? The magic of five guys working together to create what an individual can't, or... I should say couldn't because now the individual can. Making, which now makes the other four guys almost superfluous at any given time. And superfluous is another word for dead weight, extraneous baggage. And those aren't words you want used at any time when it comes to a game or entertainment. Certainly not in a team spar in a team sport. All right. Next topic. It's actually. When I originally planned to talk about this, I had a different view. And over the last 24 hours, I've come to understand by hearing more, it's I've gotten a better context on this. and it look, it might be steer, smart of me perhaps to steer clear of, of, of this entirely, but I just feel as if we've we've become we've become so scared of talking about things. In the, and, and understandably. I mean, uh, the, and I'm talking about the incident with Tim Ryan. He's a former NFL player turned broadcaster who uh, was suspended from his duties with the 49ers TV broadcast team for a comment he made on the team's flagship radio station, KNBR. Ryan suggested that between the Ravens' black uniforms, Lamar quarterback Lamar Jackson's black skin, and the dark pigment of the football, it was difficult for the 49ers defensive players to see the ball in his run-pass option plays. And I will say, initially, uh, when, when all the outrage and... I, I was at a loss. Uh, the, the, the difficulty I had is that no one specifically outlined what it was that Ryan did. Other than he included Jackson's skin color in an observation. And immediately, I'm sure there's people out there who see you can't do that. You can't do that. And I just feel, yeah, you can if it's depending on the context. He's not. Anyway, the NAACP president in the Bay Area suggested that Ryan should make a public apology. And I don't want to take that request lightly coming from the NAACP president. But he didn't say exactly what Ryan should apologize for. And I listened to a couple of TV anchors, local TV anchors. I'm here in the Bay Area. And they were discussing it. And they labeled Ryan's remarks as obviously dumb, air quotes, quotes, their words. And said something about, you just have to be smart enough not to go there. And I get that we are equal parts more sensitive and aware Thankfully so, than we've ever been. But I still needed to know exactly what was inappropriate about what Ryan said. If for no other reason, then it gives me a better chance of not inadvertently offending someone with an observation or making a a, a similar mistake. And I get what slippery ground that is for almost any situation when we talk about skin color. But again, have we lost all sense of context? Was he saying anything derogatory? That was my question. Was he saying anything that was clearly untrue or a misrepresentation? The 49ers defensive back, Richard Sherman, who's black, when asked about the remarks, said he wasn't offended, which doesn't mean Ryan didn't say something offensive because just because someone of color doesn't find it offensive, we're all different, we all have different viewpoints, doesn't mean that it wasn't offensive to the majority of, uh, of black people or people of color. But Sherman also said that he and the other defensive players had a hard time picking up the ball when Jackson had it. So uh, that's presumably for the reasons that Ryan noted. And look, I absolutely abhor whataboutism. But I have to ask, if a black batter in baseball said he had trouble picking up the ball thrown by a white pitcher with particularly white translucent skin and he was wearing a white uniform would we be alarmed would we be suggesting that was a racist remark now what i've come to understand or what i believe is this immediately was because people weren't talking about it or they were afraid to talk about it or they didn't want to really go there as the tv anchor said is that the remark very well may have been taken as insulting. Not racist insulting or derogatory, but insulting to Jackson nonetheless. The suggestion being that the reason that he's so successful is because you can't see the ball very well. Not really have to do about his skin, as much as the combination of those things is why he's so difficult to stop. And I would say, yes, I agree. That is insulting for what Lamar Jackson is doing, redefining the quarterback position. Again, in the NFL, much like we're seeing in the NBA, I we had uh, Doug Flutie just saying, hey, if I was playing now, I'd be killing it. And I think any... Steve Young, any running quarterback, any quarterback white or black who was had the don't run beaten out of them, sometimes figuratively by their coaching staff, sometimes literally by defensive players who were allowed to pound them anytime they ran the ball unlike today? Yeah, I think the rules, much like the NBA, have skewed what the uh, skill set is for particular positions. I mean, We have the debate over James Harden: is he a point guard or a shooting guard? Uh, he's he's basically both. Doesn't have to be the pass. It doesn't have to be a traditional point guard, but he does have the ball in his hands, starts the plays, often finishes them, does all of it without anybody else touching the ball. <laughs> so it's uh, it's one and the same. Uh, we're seeing everything skewed toward offense because offense sells. But still, the line defense may win championships offense sells. So now it's a matter of got to have offense. And then you try to play, try to find a way to play defense as well as you can within the particular rules. So this is how my evolution on the Tim Ryan thing is like, yeah, you know what? Probably, probably a little, I don't know that he intended it to be, uh, diminishing or demeaning the Lamar Jackson's overall abilities. But I can see where somebody would look at that and say, especially if you were with the with the Ravens, you'd look at it and say, "Hey, our dude's legit good. It's got nothing to do about being able, to, you know, having difficulty picking up the ball. He's fast. He can throw it better than anybody thought. And I will tell you, he reads situations better than I thought. And you can't clock him. He's very good at at avoiding hits and seeing the field and all of that and and." and He's very agile. Give him all of that for why he can run the way he can with impunity, but the rules also allow it. You got to be careful in how you tackle a guy, and if a quarterback even looks like he's going to begin to slide, got to let him slide, which allows allows him a little maneuverability in terms of maybe adding a few yards here and there. Makes it just makes it incredibly difficult for defenders, as I see it. All right. So now, big picture, my sensitivity to how we handle this remark by Tim Ryan is my sensitivity may be greater than it would be otherwise. Because I I went through something similar with a story that I just wrote. It was about the Warriors opponents looking forward to playing Steph Curry and Draymond Green without quite as much talent around them. And I started off the story with the line, payback, as they say, is a bitch but so is not getting the chance at it. Now, our copy desk took exception to the use of the word bitch. Not because it's poor language, but because it is sometimes used as a derogatory term toward women. And listen, to be fair, our copy desk has saved me from a couple of factual errors that would have been embarrassing. And I truly appreciate that BR has a copy desk and that they are as attentive as they are. I wish I got to talk to them instead of my editor having to make my, my case for me. But maybe it's better not, that we that we don't. Maybe there's better that there's a go between. But the my problem with this was it wasn't a factual issue. It was a a social or cultural one and I believe one that is social or cultural not in our advancement of being more aware of inappropriate terms as much as our fear of backlash for what somebody out there might interpret as being uh, derogatory. So, I, I made the case that the word bitch was in no way being used as a term in reference to women in this case. Nor... Is it that in the phrase is it considered that's what that's why the word is there? And it wasn't really clear how anyone could even construe that it was being used in that context in this story. So why were we attaching that meaning to it? Why were we creating policy for a word and a phrase that did not previously exist policy that is? Out of apprehension that somehow, some way, someone in the world would attach their own connotation to the word and then come after us for being misogynistic or whatever as a result of their interpretation. Now, I lost the fight. I had to change it to payback is a, well, you know the saying, or something to that that effect. And considering some of the other language that we do print, it sounded oddly quaint. But what the hell, It still got the point across and my story was fine and I'll live to write again and uh, send it to my copy desk and I'm sure it won't be the last time we have a disagreement and I'm sure there will be plenty of times where they save me from myself. And by the way, um, apologies to anyone who was offended by my use of hell just now. All right. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. Uh, if you enjoy the show, or even if you don't, please rate and review us uh, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you want us to do something for you, uh, send a screenshot of that rating or review, and you will be eligible to win an autographed copy of Derek Rose's new a uh, biography that he written he's written with Sam Smith, or the biography that I wrote with Yao Ming, A Life in Two Worlds, will give you a give you some insight into the challenges that the NBA has trying to branch into other cultures, uh, both attract their players and their talent, but also enter their consumer bases when those countries don't necessarily play by the same rules that we do, whether it's socially or in business Uh, all right that does it in the next podcast I'll be joined by Ryan Hollins and we will get into hopefully by then we will be able to get into uh, David Fisdale being fired by the Knicks where they go from here and what it means for a team when you have a play a coach uh, fired at this point in the season how does a team recoup what does it mean for the players how do the players take it Uh, and approach it in the locker room Ryan will give us insight into all that and I will uh, effort to give you some more insight into exactly why this happened when it happened and where the mix go from here and is anybody else on their way out the door All right, that does it as always thanks for listening